Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we are joined by a gentleman who has won a Tony Award, an Obie, a Pulitzer Prize, the Academy Award, and is in the Bronx Walk of Fame, I understand? That's true. There's a street <laughs> named after me up there. John Patrick Shanley Street or Avenue or what is it? It's John Patrick Shanley Street. Is it really? It is indeed. And where in the Bronx would that be? On the Grand Concourse. Well, that's pretty grand, pun definitely intended. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, John. Thanks. Nice Downstage to be here. Downstage Center. Your, um, your bio on uh, the Playbill Online states, I'm going to quote now, John Patrick Shanley is from the Bronx. He was thrown out of St. Helena's or St. Helena's kindergarten. He was banned from St. Anthony's hot lunch program for life. He was expelled from Cardinal Spellman High School. He was placed on academic probation by New York University and instructed to appear before a tribunal if he wished to return. When asked why he had been treated in this way by all those institutions, he burst into tears and said he had no idea. Then he went to the United States Marine Corps. He did fine. He's still doing okay. John, is any of that true? It's all true, and it's been edited down. Oh, this this is the short version, the <laughs> yes. Reader's Digest version. Yes, indeed. No, it's all quite true, although, it's, uh, funnily enough, I got an email the other day from Cardinal Spellman High School in the Bronx uh, that threw me out, inviting me to return through the front door and <laughs> uh, and speak to the students, uh, which um, I thought was a pretty funny thing, so I said, I'll do it. Well, I read that partly uh, for humor, but partly also because a number of your shows, from even your, your very first, Danny in the Deep Blue Sea, right through to Doubt and Now Defiance... A lot of it is semi-autobiographical. In other words, based on your own life experience, you've drawn from that to write. In some sense, I think every writer writes from their own experience, their own life, even if they appear to be utterly manufacturing what they're writing about. For instance, I did a play about Benvenuto Cellini, the 16th century Florentine sculptor, but on some level even that was autobiographical. Um, In the case of Doubt and uh, Defiance, both of those plays are... Uh, take place in in institutions that I attended or participated in, and the first being St. Anthony's Grammar School in the Bronx, uh, and the second being the United States Marine Corps Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. So people inevitably are asking, as John was in the they're asking how much of this is your life. By bringing it out in your Playbill bios, because you have a very specific bio uh, for Defiance that talks about your time in the Marine Corps, you've talked about your relationship to your Catholic school in in the Doubt uh, program, are you inviting people to draw parallels, or are they giving it scrutiny that ultimately you'd rather just want to look at the play? Well... I don't think that it's getting undue scrutiny, actually. I think uh, I wrote so many plays that were baldly autobiographical that uh, me and the critics and everybody sort of went through that. And now the plays are actually much less autobiographical and much more about the society that I live in. And um, I uh, link that observation about my society to specific experiences that I have had. But that's just the jumping off place to talk about other things. And in what you commented on about the critics going through things with you, critics have commented that your playwriting, particularly in the case of Doubt and Defiance, seems to have reached a new and different level and different style. Do you see these as a departure from the kind of work you were doing previously? 
I always had the ambition that for the first half of my writing life that I would write about my own problems, my own experiences, my own girlfriends and wives and parents, and uh, uh, and try to work out uh, emotional and intellectual issues that face me as an individual. And my hope, my aspiration was in the second half of my life that I would turn outward and talk more about society at large uh, and, and participate more as a, a citizen of the world, a member of that society, than simply talking about something that was more narrow and personal. And uh, that's what I've done. Uh, it started before... Uh, doubt. It really started with uh, Dirty Story, which is about Israel and the Palestinians. And then I did a movie for HBO called Live from Baghdad, which was about CNN and the Gulf War. And um, uh, then I went into Doubt and uh, Defiance, which were ostensibly Doubt. It was about the church scandals, but in more broadly, it was about a kind of uh, dogmatic certainty I was seeing afflicting uh, and affecting the world around me. And Defiance uh, uh, is uh, about uh, the questioning of authority. Uh, we we need to have um, uh, sources of authority. Uh, and what are they? What should they be? Those are very interesting questions to me. Well, since Defiance is your newest work and is only playing here in New York right now, can you give us just a very brief description of what Defiance is about without, I should say, going too far because there's there's a surprise partway through that we wouldn't want to reveal? Defiance takes place in 1971 at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and it's almost exclusively about Marine Corps officers uh, at that time. And in 1971... Uh, in uh, the Marine Corps was a real low point uh, for all the armed services, American armed services. Uh, and we was, should say that's when you were in the Marine Corps. That is Corps. correct. <laughs> and I would like to think that it wasn't because I was in the Marine Corps. <laughs> but uh, I happened to be a witness to it. And there was tremendous racial problems. Uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King led to race riots uh, on military bases, U.S. military bases, all over the world, in in Japan and in Germany and on the east and west coast in the United States. Uh, and uh, pretty much there was a, a parting of company between uh, uh, black U.S. soldiers and white U.S. soldiers because of black soldiers uh, sort of asked the basic question, uh, why should I fight for you? Our our leader has been killed, and clearly it was not your leader. Uh, and um, in, in addition, there was the uh, effect of the lingering war in Vietnam, which by that point uh, was um, starting to wind down. But huge numbers of people were coming back from Vietnam in the, in, in the military with drug problems, emotional problems, physical problems. And uh, a lot of these people were not being discharged, uh, but being kept on the rolls, as it were. And I lived in a barracks with 80 Vietnam returnees. Uh, that atmosphere, uh, the atmosphere of that time, I was reminded of the beginnings of it uh, in this time that we're in now, uh, where we are sending all these people to Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere, uh, and uh, not perhaps completely understanding what that ever-spiraling number of veterans are going to be as a social issue in the days and years to come. Well, in, in Defiance, the, the central characters are a white lieutenant colonel and a black captain who reports to the, to the yes. lieutenant colonel. And it's about their relationship and about... Uh, 
power and responsibility, taking orders, giving orders, that sort of thing. Uh, there are other characters in it as well. There's a chaplain, there's the wife, and a couple others. How much of that is, is real? In other words, based on your experiences at Camp Lejeune or in the Marine Corps in general, how much is, is fictionalized from your imagination? Well, you know, I'm an artist, so I don't know the difference between <laughs> real and not real anyway. Everything's real to me. Uh, and uh, other than uh, facts, um, you know, the definition of what a fact is is something that you can take in with one of your five senses that you can either uh, lick it or uh, look at it or smell it or whatever. Uh, so, in fact, what we factually know as individuals is a very modest amount, and we all extrapolate from information that we receive in other ways a much larger reality than our five senses would give us. Having said that, <laughs> I um, uh, uh, spent a goodly amount of time in the company of Marine Corps officers during the time that I was in, and subsequently I have known uh, many uh, Marine Corps personnel, uh, ex-Marines, over the years and, and spent a goodly amount of time with them. And so I feel pretty comfortable that I know what I'm talking about. Uh, the The issues in the play are palpable uh, in in my world now and have been all my life uh, there's a there's a, a different personality types in the world and for instance this guy Captain King the black Marine Corps captain in the play which at that time was a tremendous rarity there were very few black officers in the Marine Corps uh, he wants to disappear into his uniform. His aspiration is not to be black, not to be any color, but simply to be a Marine. And the lieutenant colonel, on the other hand, his aspiration for being in uniform is to shine, is to be a heroic figure, is to get attention. So these two guys, one of whom desperately wants not to be the center of things, uh, uh, and the, this guy who desperately wants to be important and to be the center of things, are drawn into a clash so that the person who desperately doesn't want to be uh, a central participant in any uh, uh, debate or clash is forced to confront his colonel uh, and uh, in a pretty um, exciting scene. Uh, and there's a chaplain in the play who has a hunger for power. And I have seen in this country over the course of my life the will to power taking place in organized and not so organized uh, religion. Um, starting, I would say, that I noticed it with Billy Graham praying with presidents and uh, coming to the present day where uh, the evangelical movement has uh, become incredibly political active in this country and sort of melded in certain places, for instance, the Air Force, with uh, military command. And there's a reason for that. The, the reason is, why should you obey anybody? Why should you listen to me? Why should I be the moral leader of you? I mean, certainly this has come up recently, the trials of uh, lowercase guys uh, uh, who did uh, transgress at Abu Ghraib. Uh, that they're not nailing the higher-ups. They're nailing the guys who took the orders and not nailing the guys who gave the orders, um, which is um, at least really curious. And we should point out also that the captain is forced into a rather untenable position that, whether in the Marines or not, everybody at some point in life is forced to make a decision, perhaps 
going in a direction that they don't really want to go, but it's probably exacerbated because it is a Marine Corps and it's such a highly disciplined organization, and he's put into this rather untenable position. Right. Make, well, when a, whenever an officer is forced to confront a superior officer, it's a really bad day. Uh, <laughs> and if it actually could unseat that officer, if it could disra- disgrace him, it could, it could ruin his career, the uh, junior officer that does that, his career will be over as well. That's a fact of life in the military, even though it's not supposed to be that way. Is that something that really would happen in the Marine Corps? Oh, it happens all the time. Is it really? It's one of the chief reasons that senior officers are removed. Mm. Interesting. As we talk about the themes of authority, which run through defiance and doubt, we've certainly read, said many times, that now these two plays are part of a trilogy. Um, Did you set out to write a trilogy, or did you write doubt and then say, I have more places to go. And as as a corollary, I want to mention, you've dedicated defiance to August Wilson, who perhaps when he wrote his first plays didn't immediately say, I'm writing a 10-play cycle, but it evolved. What was the process for you? Uh, I certainly didn't know that I was writing a trilogy when I began. Uh, When I wrote doubt, uh, I was writing doubt and that was all. And then when I started the second play, I saw that it was related to doubt. Uh, and that, in fact, that it could not rest there either because the experience that we as a culture had in the 50s and early 60s were, in this country, we were the children of uh, several institutions, paternalistic institutions. Uh, the chief among them would be uh, the U.S. government, another would be uh, the military, another would be organized religion, whether you were raised as a Protestant or Roman Catholic or a Jew or whatever. Uh, and that um, uh, at a certain point in the early 60s, people began to, in a serious way across the country, question, and around the Western world anyway, question these institutions. Uh, you know, why should I obey you? Why should I do that? Why shouldn't I do that? And that was the birth of defiance of that next phase of things. Uh, but as I was writing defiance, uh, I came to see that the trilogy couldn't rest there, that it couldn't be a duology. It was going to have to be at least a trilogy because defiance is an adolescent step. It's it's sort of uh, uh, not enough. You can't simply say, I'm not going to do what you say because I don't think it's the right thing. You have to continue on from there and come up with, well, what would you do? What do you believe? What is the right thing to do? Is there any authority that you would obey if you thought that it was legitimate? I mean, for instance, I've had many problems with authority in my life. But uh, if a fellow were to come up to me and say, grab a bucket, my house is on fire, help me put it out, I would undoubtedly grab a bucket and help him put it out. If he said, grab a bucket of gasoline and help me put it out, I'd say, hold up a minute. Mm -hmm. Who are you? (laughs) And how did you get this job? Uh, uh, We are faced at this time with a a certain leadership uh, vacuum in the United States. The Democratic Party is in uh, disarray, most people agree. The Republican Party has uh, a reflexive kind of authority, but what it is the tenets of the Republican Party are, I'm not really sure about. It's certainly not exactly what they're saying it is. Nobody seems to be able to enunciate in a way that makes me believe that they are 
coming from a legitimate place, neither Republicans nor Democrats, uh, uh, a philosophically based set of observances and beliefs and codes that adds up to somebody that I should listen to and do what they say. And I see a need for it. Uh, but I think we're going to have to go back to the basic impulses that Socrates and Plato uh, and Archimedes and uh, all the sort of great first thinkers uh, uh, engaged in and say, what is truth? What is government? What is good? What is bad? And refind ourselves. Because I think we've uh, uh, come to a place where we no longer understand as a country what the framers of the Constitution were writing about. We no longer viscerally understand that that is uh, um, a hard-fought-for and intellectually rigorous series of tenets based on thousands of years of thought. In these two plays, you've certainly laid out the problems of authority. Do you see your role, and is it possible that the third play might try to offer hope or solutions to how we deal with, with this vacuum you speak of? I certainly don't believe uh, that um, either doubt or defiance uh, is a cry of despair in any way. It, it's simply a, a, a rigorous walking down the road to see where we are. Uh, and for me, that's a very exciting trip. I... Uh, uh, I like writing these plays. I like what's going on in the audience when they're seeing these plays. Uh, I, you know, they function on the level of story, and they also function on the level of what do you believe? And the people are walking out after these plays and talking to each other about not simply, you know, do you think this guy did this or didn't do that? Do you think that this husband and wife will stay together or break up? But they're also talking about issues of the day, stuff that I that concerns us all in our daily life and uh, concerns us for the protection of our children and the legitimate pursuit of happiness. Well, doubt is about problems between two people in an organized situation, the church. Defiance is a problem between two people in another organized institution, the military. When you set out to create defiance, at what point did you decide, I'm going to write a trilogy? And when you made that decision to write a trilogy, did you also decide what that third work is going to be? No. I felt very strongly, and do in general when I'm writing, that I have to write from where I am at the time and then go on to the next thing. There is an interchange in defiance. Uh, that is sort of key to the whole thing. The one, the captain uh, is pushed into a corner and finally says, well, if you do that, I'm going to have to defy you. Mm -hmm. And the colonel says back to him, defiance is not enough, mister. I expect more of a man uh, than rebellion when his morals are offended. I expect leadership. And that is a cry to the people of this country to say it is not enough to carp and complain about uh, what you see wrong in the world. It is uh, a, a necessary thing to go on from there to take uh, prescriptive steps to alter that in whatever large or small method you choose, whatever seems appropriate to you. Uh, we need to um, move out of the passive role into the active role. Uh, in terms of ethics. Well, 
doubt is written at a time when the Catholic Church has significant issues with you know priests and young boys and all that. Defiance is written at a time set in a, a war that was unpopular back in 1971, the end of the Vietnam era, and now we're in another situation with a war that's becoming increasingly less popular. Do you think the third one might be about what you were just talking about a moment ago, politics, about Democrats and Republicans, that sort of thing? Well, it certainly has organized to institution. It certainly has to do, will have to do with politics. Both of these plays are political that I've already done. Uh, uh, the But what we don't need is, you know, another play that's about partisanship, another play where we're speaking to the converted about uh, what they already believe and telling them that they're right. That's a doubt is not about uh, uh, that priests are molesting children and then that's wrong and it should stop. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a no-brainer that it's not a good thing that that happened or even might continue to be happening in certain cases. And it doesn't particularly interest me. Uh, um, it's like the, the 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 subject of you know child molestation. Uh, people are shocked and appalled by child molesters. Uh, and uh, you know my feeling is from what I've seen, from what I've read, child molesters don't have any particular ability to stop being child molesters. The interesting people to me are the people who are child molesters who protect child molesters, like a lot of the people in the middle and upper echelons of the Catholic Church did. And I'm very surprised that those people weren't brought to justice because from where I come from, that's a felony. Uh, uh, and that, you know, these people who are basically nuts, as far as I'm concerned, are the ones that are being castigated and and uh, put on trial, thrown in jail, all of that stuff. Uh, and the people over them who really did have their wits about them in cold blood enabled them to continue on with what they were doing because it served their present interest. You commented a few minutes ago that you like seeing the reactions of your audience. You like seeing how they walk out of the theater. And we keep referring to your Playbill bios, but you've taken what, as far as I know, is the relatively unprecedented step of offering the audience an email address yes. to write to you. Mm-hmm. What do you hear? Well, they write to me every day. And now they're writing to me from other countries because it's in the playbill in other countries, too. So I'm hearing from New Zealand and Australia and Paris, and um, uh, they're telling me how it's going down there. I had production uh, of a play on the West Coast, and an audience member wrote me and said, you know, the main actress doesn't know her lines. And I called <laughs> the director that day and said, what? You know, And the director loved me a message how great it was going. I said, it's going so great. I understand the lead actress doesn't know her lines. And she started sputtering because it was true. And so you can get that kind of end run uh, around what's going on from day to day. I mean, this is a far cry from dipping into the chat rooms. This is direct communication. Oh, yeah, no, I'm not interested in that. I I much prefer this. People write me letters and I write them back as best I can. I write everybody back. Uh, And uh, they tell me what they thought of... uh, doubt or defiance, or they tell me very often their own experience of being in Catholic elementary school or living in the Bronx or being in the military, uh, and uh, it's it's uh, terribly interesting. And it sort of makes it, I think, what it should be, is sort of a, an ongoing, low-level town meeting. 
Well, there is the the statement in in uh, uh, Catcher in the Rye where Holden Caulfield, I believe, talked about when you read a good book, you just want to be able to write the author and and tell him, and and you've made that possible for everybody. And meanwhile, Salinger became you know completely unreachable. <laughs> it's an irony, but uh, but nonetheless, but beyond the the specifics of doesn't know lines. Do you really end up in a dialogue with these people, or do they share it, you acknowledge, and, and move on? Uh, it's usually not an extensive correspondence, you know, uh, but uh, it's, you know, a letter, two letters, uh, and, you know, we get to the end of the They recognize, you know, my limits as a human being. Uh, the People are actually quite thoughtful, uh, and they'll um, they'll tell me if they had a problem with the play, and I'll take note of that, and I'll either, you know, think that it's a production problem and pass it on to the director, uh, or uh, I'll think it's my problem, and I'll tell them, look, I, I think I might have blown that part of it. I'll try to do better on the next one. Well, since you talked about a production that you hadn't seen and you were only getting reports, we should say that, particularly right now, Doubt is just getting a raft of productions. Um, you said you're going over to Paris next week to yes. see a production directed by Roman Polanski. Yes. You t- said uh, Auckland, uh, China, South Korea. Um, Japan, all over South America, Ireland. Uh, you yeah. could spend all your time going and seeing these. How, ma- how many of these do you get to see, and what is it like to see them within another culture. Well, I've never chased my career. I, you know, I do a play, and you can follow that play. You know, my plays have been done uh, in a lot of places. And um, uh, I could go and, and watch all of those productions. I have gone to a couple. I went to Danny in the Deep Blue Sea in Barcelona years ago uh, because it just sounded like something not to be missed. And indeed, when I got off the plane at the airport and they drove me into town, they drove me down the main street of town, and there were banners red banners from every lamppost the whole length of the main boulevard announcing my play. And I was like, well, this is a nice way to visit Spain for the first time. Uh, And uh, those people know how to party. I was a broken man by the end of the week. But it was interesting to see uh, the cultural difference uh, in the acting style for me because I knew the play backwards and forwards and it was in the Catalan dialect which I don't know I know a few words but that's about it but I could see that the expression of certain emotions was slightly different and heightened uh, in in uh, uh, that culture and that was that was uh, very informative to me whereas I'm sure that if I saw it in Germany it would be you know stern <laughs> <laughs> Well, whether it be Danny and the Deep Blue Sea, which was a very early work of yours, or Doubt, which is the one that you won the Pulitzer for, uh, what sort of uh, voice do you have in these various productions? In other words, productions being done not only in other cities in this country, but around the world in terms of choosing the director, choosing the cast. Do you have any input at all in, in what goes on with your properties? In you know, if I, if certainly like in Japan, uh, I've um, been you know offered to direct the plays there. In fact, I agreed to direct one of them. Several of my plays have been done there. And then woke up in the middle of the night and went, I'm not going to Japan <laughs> for six weeks and directing through interpreters. I'll go out of my mind. Um, I'm not a control freak. I'm very content to let my work go and be interpreted by other people. And I'm usually working on something new, which is sort of what I meant when I said I don't want to chase my career. 
uh, I don't really want to uh, go around the country directing productions of doubt or watching productions of doubt. Uh, I'm going to Paris because, number one, it's Paris. Number two, it's <laughs> Roman Polanski. So I'm going. Mm-hmm. There's certain things that, you know, make sense. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll certainly try to go to the opening at the Abbey because my family, half my family still lives in Ireland, and that would be a great thrill. And I think that they'll probably have a particular connection with that material since 90% of their educational system is run by the Catholic Church. Uh, but that's about it, you know. I mean, I, I want to. I'm writing a new, uh, a little series of skits now for a fundraiser, and that's what I'm doing now. And I'm writing uh, a movie for. I've actually written a movie for Norman Jewison and that he's supposed to direct in New Orleans this summer about post Katrina, and uh, uh, it keeps my plate pretty full. That and my new dog. <laughs> what, what, what what kind of dog? I got a black lab puppy named Stella, and. Uh, She's got a real work ethic. <laughs> I'm trying to keep up with. <laughs> now, when when a work of yours is done in another country, do you need to do any rewriting because either different culture, different language, different production? No, I did get. Uh, uh, I did, the play is also right now in rehearsals in Indonesia, and I got a request from the director there to change a couple of the names of the characters because in Indonesia it would be misleading as to the nationality because the actress uh, is of Chinese extraction that having this particular name wouldn't work right in that culture. So I said, sure, change the name. But you don't have to rewrite any lines. No, no. We've been talking about these most recent plays and we keep alluding to to earlier in your career and certainly Danny and the Deep Blue Sea. Um, I think it's worth noting that you have had, for the better part of 20 years, an ongoing relationship with the Manhattan Theater Club, where both Doubt and Defiance originated, but but it really does go way back. Yes. How how did that develop, and and what has been the freedom of that opportunity to work in the sa- with the same producing team throughout that time? Well, I've worked at a lot of theaters. Uh, I've worked with uh, Shakespeare Festival. Joe Papp produced the Big Funk and uh, Ensemble Studio Theater. And uh, more recently, Labyrinth. At the Labyrinth Theater, I've done two or three shows with. Uh, and so, I, you know, I try to I try to spread it around. Manhattan Theater Club. I started working there as a house manager uh, in I think 1980. Uh, and um, met Lynn Meadow and Barry Grove then, and uh, I was a very good house manager. As, as a former employee there as well, <laughs> the rumor was that in those days you were trying to get them to read your plays, and they were like, you're the house manager. Well, they would ask me, you know, what were my interests, you know, and I would say, I'm a playwright, and they would go, oh, that's great, <laughs> you know. But actually, no, I didn't hawk my plays to them. That wasn't my style. I was working, I think at that time, at New Dramatis on West 44th Street, which is a membership organization for new playwrights, young playwrights. And I was doing uh, staged reading after staged reading of plays uh, there and had a sort of, you know, come-if-you-want quality to the way that I worked. Um, and then I I brought, I got Danny in the Deep Blue Sea, got produced by Actors Theatre of Louisville and became a sensation down there with John Turturro and June Stein. And then it moved to New York in a co-production between Circle in the Square, now defunct, downtown, and Circle, pardon me, Circle Repertory Company, which is now defunct, and Circle in the Square. And um, uh, that was sort of my breakthrough play. Uh, I quit 
I had a day job that I had gotten about a year before. It was the first I'd ever finally allowed myself to have, and I quit it uh, when that play opened in New York. And I made all of $7,000 on that play initially, um, but I've never had to work for anyone again. Now, you early on had written basically just plays. Then you went Hollywood and wrote a number of movies, most notably Moonstruck, for which you won the Oscar. Um, Then, again, now you're writing plays and you're winning Tonys and Pulitzers and all that. Writing screenplays, has that in any way affected the way you write or your your, your message you're trying to get across? Is is there a difference in John Patrick Shanley today, post-movie, stardom, so to speak, versus before. Oh, yeah. No, writing screenplays is a great thing for me because screenplays are all about structure and demand, endless structure, endless storytelling. You don't have people sitting around talking for half an hour. You've got to get on with it, and you've got to come up with a lot of scenes, a lot of places. You have to think in highly visual terms, and I found that very enlivening and freeing, and I could use that uh, increased ability to generate structure in subsequent plays. So for me, it was a great thing. And also, yes, it did fund my ability to have the time to write plays. Uh, And I was fortunate in that the first four screenplays that I wrote, I wrote on spec, and all four of them were made in the order that I wrote them. And then, you know, for one of the four, I won the Academy Award and the Writers Guild of America Award. And the first one I did was produced by George Harrison of the Beatles and and, uh, won the Barcelona special jury prize for the screenplay. That's Five Corners. That was Five Corners, right? And, uh, you know, I went on and did some interesting films. I did this movie Alive about the Andes disaster and uh, based on the Piers Paul Reed book and was uh, honored to get a letter from Piers Paul Reed saying... That was really good. <laughs> How did you do that? How did you turn that big book into you know that slim screenplay? So that was you know, heartening. And I met all those guys who had mm. eaten their relatives, and we had dinner together, <laughs> and that was interesting. So uh, you, it drags you, you into different parts of life. You know, I'm doing this movie with Norman Jewison called Accordion, and you know, so I'm down in the Lower Ninth Ward in in New Orleans, uh, talking to people and looking at the devastation. And I'm not sure that I would have gotten there if I wasn't doing that. So, and that's a broadening thing for a playwright to be exposed to that kind of thing. As you're talking about all those fellows who ate their relatives, you do have a way with words. <laughs> I guess that's a good thing for a writer. <laughs> it is, you know. And it's a, but it's it's um, people who've had these intense experiences. Uh, and survived and flourished even, uh, those are interesting people to spend time with. Uh, It's very easy for a writer, certain kinds of writers, you know, you can be a poet, you can be a novelist, and you can end up sitting in your room year in and year out and really getting no more stimulation or information except from the printed word. And I'm not sure that that broadens you sufficiently. So as we look uh, forward to the future from John Patrick Shanley, you've certainly written some very heavy dramatic plays and we know that he's working on the third part of your trilogy. you got the movie coming up. Uh, what have you not done that you would like to do? Comedy, musicals, anything else that oh, you're I've just done, trying to do? I've done comedies. I mean, yeah. I do. But I mean, are there other things that you are trying yeah. to do? I would do a musical. Uh, I uh, We took one whack at making Moonstruck a musical, and actually well, it was going pretty well, but then it got sort of derailed by a lot of other stuff that had nothing to do with the musical, and uh, it would, had taken so long that I, I uh, chose to pick up my pencils and go home for a while. Uh, But I've talked to people about doing that again, and there's people out there who would like me to do that. So I'd be interested in that. I'm interested in cabaret. I'm interested in farce. 
uh, I've uh, I've done a, a little bit of all of those kinds of things. Uh, and then there's just the unknown. You know, there's a tremendous amount going on in the world and in this country at this time that I think bears examination and discussion and is um, just electrifying to me. Such uh, as? Well, I think that America's really asleep right now, and it's really cut off from a lot of the experiences of its own people. We have a huge prison population in this country, which is a giant asleep, and it is going to wake up one day, and it ain't going to be pretty. We have to deal with that. We don't feel that, because that's ghettoized. It's in a separate room from us. We uh, uh, get all bullish uh, and angry about uh, events in the world, and we decide to invade another country. We don't feel that, because there's no draft. Those decisions have no blood on them. And uh, when you don't feel it, it didn't really happen. We're the biggest arms manufacturer in the world. I don't think most people feel that. They don't see the weapons leaving this country on cargo ships day after day after day going all over the world. But other people do. Other countries do because that's where the weapons are arriving. Uh, and I think that all of these things are like parts of our body, if you think of America as a physical body, that have been filled with Novocaine. It's like we don't feel our arms, we don't feel our legs, and people keep saying, are you disturbed about all these things are happening? They say, I feel fine. And you do feel fine until you try to move your arm or try to move your leg and realize that you're completely out of touch with it. Hmm. Interesting. Well, on that note, John Patrick Shanley, we say thank you for being with us today on Downstage Center. It was great. Thanks for having <laughs> me. Likewise. Thanks, John. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that's a wrap, and thank you.